hearts that we would be resolved uh, to follow you. And Lord, uh, what an incredible thing it is to think about that, that that, that we can be resolved. And Lord, uh, that we live in a life uh, in a world today where there is just very little resolve for righteousness uh, and very little resolve for truth and very little resolve for following you. And Father, I pray that no matter what the circumstances are, no matter what the consequences may be, that, Lord, we would have that resolve in our life. And, Father, uh, we would also just pray today that our resolve would be based upon uh, the word that you've spoken, uh, that, that you've spoken through your prophets and that you've spoken uh, through your spirit, uh, moving holy men's hands as they wrote down Scripture. And, Lord, uh, that, we would, that we would remember that and hold true to that and that our resolve would be anchored uh, within that. And, Father, we would just pray today that your promise would hold true, that your word would not return void. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Before we, we get started here today, I'll, I'll apologize. My, uh, my voice, at least, it sounds a little bit different to me than what it normally does. Maybe, maybe it does to you, maybe it doesn't. But uh, we've got a, a little guy who's, who's teething. And as he's teething, he's got a lot of, um, uh, what, what might you say, snot and different things like that. Uh, and and I, I've been sneezed in the mouth a few times, and I'm just coming over, uh, just getting over a cold, but it all rested on my vocal cords is what I feel like this morning. And so uh, it, it, it's one of those, those fun things, and so that's, that's always great. But uh, I apologize if I sound just a little bit different. But this morning when we, we get started, I want, to, I want to remind us of the date, August 15th. 1971. Now, I, I don't remember that because I wasn't alive then, but, but August 15th, 1971, President Richard Nixon announced that America would be moving away from, does anybody know here? Gold the gold standard. The gold standard. Uh, so we've got, we, we've got somebody who is a historian here in our midst, right? Okay. Moving away from the gold standard. And when we think about this move, uh, it, it created a fiat currency that we have, right? A fiat currency. Today, our currency is not backed up by gold. In fact, it's being inflated very, very, very quickly. And, and during uh, this time, while the government is just running, uh, you know, printing money, basically um, uh, unhinged. I mean, just printing it off as fast as they can. Um, last year, the, the biggest stimulus check or the biggest, uh, the, the biggest, uh, basically, you know, free gift. It wasn't free, right? We're going to have to pay for it. Uh, in the entire world was signed. And then we've had more that have been signed since then. I mean, just an incredible thing to go and to look at. And being in the conservative world, I have people who talk to me all the time saying, you know, it'd be great. Our economy would be so much better if we returned to the gold standard. If we got back to the gold standard, you know, I, I agree. That would be great if we got back to the gold standard. I, I, I don't disagree one bit with that, especially with everything that is happening now to kind of rein in our, our economic spending and to have some, uh, it, it would give some accountability and we would have to actually account for the debt that we have, which we're accruing at a very quick rate. But something that's even more important than getting back to the gold standard, although I'm, I'm maybe splitting hairs here because I think that you can make a pretty good biblical argument that the gold standard is, is also part of God's standard. But what I want to see us get back to is God's standard, the thing that will save our nation greatest. The only hope that we really have for our nation is to return back 
to God's standard. And today we're going to be looking at, at God's standard as we continue through Exodus. And in Exodus chapter 18 verses, uh, well, we're going to look at the whole chapter. So 1 through 27, if you'd open up here uh, your Bibles to Exodus 18, we're going to see God's standard, but specifically God's standard for, for leaders. And specifically, as we're going to see uh, political leaders, which is something that is incredible to go and to look at because uh, in today's day and age, we, we don't like to look at the Bible at all for God's standard uh, or for a standard in our own life, it seems, in our own nation, but especially when it comes to politics. But there are, are simple standards that we see here, and we're going to see why this is so important and why this is even relevant for today. But if you follow along as I read in Exodus chapter 18, we're going to start in verse 1, and we're going to read just the whole chapter to get us the whole narrative. But it says in Exodus 18, starting in verse 1, And Jethro, the priest of Midian, Moses' father-in-law, heard of all that God had done for Moses and for Israel, his people. And the Lord had brought Israel out of Egypt. Then Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, took Zipporah, Moses' wife, and uh, he, after he had sent her back, uh, back with her two sons, of whom the name of one was Gershom, for uh, he had said, I have been a stranger in a foreign land. And the name of the other was uh, Eliezer. Uh, for he said, uh, God of my father was my help and deliverer me, delivered me with this, from, the sword, with, from the sword of Pharaoh. Excuse me here. Maybe I'll be able to read. And, and continuing in verse 5, it says, And Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, came with his sons and his wife to Moses in the wilderness where he was encamped at the mountain of God. Now he had said to Moses, I, your father-in-law, Jethro, am coming to you with your wife and her two sons with her. So Moses went out to meet his father-in-law, bowed down, kissed him, and uh, they asked each other about their well-being. And they went into the tent, and Moses told his father-in-law all that the Lord had done to Pharaoh and to the Egyptians for Israel's sake. All, uh, all the hardship that had come upon them on the way and how the Lord had delivered him. Them. Then Jethro rejoiced for all the good which the Lord had done for Israel, whom he had delivered out of the hand of the Egyptians. And Jethro said, Blessed be the Lord, who has delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians and out of the hand of Pharaoh, and who has delivered the people from under the hand of the Egyptians. Now I know that the Lord is greater than all the gods, for in the very thing which they believed proudly, he was above them. Then Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, took a burnt offering and other sacrifices to offer to God. And Aaron came with all the elders of Israel to eat bread with Moses' father-in-law before God. And so it was on the next day that Moses sat and judged the people. And the, uh, the people stood before Moses from morning until evening. So Moses' father-in-law saw that he did for the people all he did for the people. He said, what is this thing that you are doing for the people? Why do you alone sit and all the people stand before you from morning until evening? And Moses said to his father-in-law, because the people come to me and inquire of God when they have difficulty, they come to me and I judge between one another and I make known the statutes of God and his laws. So Moses' father-in-law stood or said to him, the thing which you do is not good. Both you and these people who are with you will surely wear yourselves out for this thing is too much for you. 
You are not able to perform it by yourself. Listen now to my voice, and I will give you counsel, and God will be with you. Stand before God for the people, that you may bring the difficulties to God, that you shall teach them the way which they must walk in the work which they must do. Moreover, you shall select from all the people able men, such as fear God, men of truth, hating covetousness, and place such over them to be rulers of thousands, rulers of hundreds, rulers of fifties, rulers of tens, and let them judge the people at all times. Then it will be that every great matter that they shall bring to you, but every small matter they shall themselves shall judge. So it will be easier for you, for they will bear the burdens with you. If you do this thing and God so commands you, then you will be able to endure and all the people will also go to their place in peace. So Moses heeded the voice of his father-in-law and did all that he said. And Moses chose able men out of Israel, all of Israel, and made them heads over the people, rulers of thousands, rulers of hundreds, uh, rulers of fifties, and rulers of tens. So they judged the people at all times. They, uh, the hard cases they brought to Moses, but they judged every small case themselves. Then Moses let his father-in-law depart, and he went his way to his own land. Now this is important to go and to look at, especially concerning our nation uh, because the, the principle that I just read is actually the establishment of the higher and lower courts uh, that our nation still holds to today with the Supreme Court and the lower courts uh, under that. And I, I really wish I had time to, to really get into that, but we're not going to spend time to go into look at that. But I just want to plant that nugget in your mind because our, our nation was uh, was founded on, on Christian principles. It was founded as a, as a Christian nation. And, and one of those ideas of having a higher, you know, we've got a higher court, the Supreme Court. And then lower courts, that, that's rooted directly in Exodus 18. That's directly where they pulled that from, is that idea that, that uh, Moses would go and choose leaders who would go and judge the people. And they would go and judge the smaller cases. But if they had uh, difficult cases that they couldn't go and figure out, they would go and appeal to a higher court or to a, a higher judge. And so uh, that, that's something that's, that's interesting, but we're not going to get into that so much today. The thing that I want to first of all look at is just the narrative so that we can understand this here. It starts off that, that Jethro comes to visit Moses. Jethro comes to visit Moses. Now, we, we've looked at Jethro before. In fact, in, uh, earlier in Exodus, I believe Exodus 2, uh, he was called uh, Reol or, or Reol. Uh, and so I just called him Jethro because Jethro is a lot easier to say. But, but he comes to visit Moses. So we are familiar with this character when Moses was, was out in the wilderness after he had fled Egypt. He found his, his home in the wilderness of, of Midian, basically. And this priest of Midian, Jethro, took him in and, and Moses married uh, Jethro's daughter. And so uh, Jethro now is coming to, to visit Moses. And Jethro and Moses, when they come and they meet together... Uh, they, they give their pleasantries. They go and they, they, they say, you know, hey, how's the weather going today? Or, or how are you doing? You know, they talk just a little bit. But then they go back into the tent and they start talking. And Moses tells Jethro all that God has done for Israel. I mean, can you imagine sitting down and, and, and telling us here? It's taken us several weeks to get this far into, into Exodus and to go over all this. And, of course, there have been much more details that, that, that Moses would have had. 
Because, I mean, you know, he could be saying, oh, and, and, and let me tell you about the face that Pharaoh was making when he went and he did this. And, and he said, I will not let my people go. And we're just going, what, you want one more night with the stinking frogs? What's wrong with you, Pharaoh? You know, maybe it wasn't quite that animated with this discussion. I don't know. But, but I mean, can you imagine all the different things that he's telling Pharaoh about? He's going and he's telling him, well, wow, I mean, you, you know, God told me to go and put my staff uh, and to, to raise it up above, above the, the Nile and it turns to blood. I mean, just an incredible thing. And, and then can you imagine him going and telling him, wow, you know, God brought all the, the, these lice, but the people of Israel, though, I mean, they're, they're right next to it. They were untouched by this plague. And of course, can you imagine telling him about the Red Sea crossing? And there was the water. You know, we saw fish going right by us. Wow. Incredible things. And the Passover. All these incredible things. It was a time of great testimony. A great time to remember the works of God. And, and this is something that I think that we need to remember and take and apply to our own life. We need to have testimonies in our life. You need to tell people what God has done in your life. You know, sometimes we forget the works of God because we don't talk about the works of God. We don't talk about what God has brought us through, what God has seen us through, the, the great things that God has done in our life. <clears throat> but this is something, if we're going to follow the great men of God, if we're going to follow the great testimonies, the great, the great hall of faith, as we call it, the chapter of faith in Hebrews 11, Moses is in there. When Moses sits down and with his father-in-law, he goes and he, he talks about the testimonies of God. And, and, and I want to also make sure that we understand here, it was his father-in-law that he was talking to. You need to do this inside of our families. We have family get-togethers. We ought to go and do this. You know, Christmas, one, one Christmas tradition that, that we have on, on Sarah's side of the family is that we go and we, uh, we, we watch a Christmas carol and we... Uh, you know, have these other traditions and things like that, but something that should be part of your family tradition when you get together, especially those who have extended uh, Christian families. I understand not having an extended Christian family because my parents didn't get saved. My, my mom when I was seven, my dad when I was three, their parents didn't get saved. Well, uh, some have never, never got saved, but uh, some didn't get saved till later. So I understand not always having a Christian extended family. But, but if you do have a Christian extended family, you get together and talk about what God has done in your life. Remember those things. And if you're multi-generational, you know, some of you guys can go and say, my great, 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 you know, uh, grandma was, well, was, was a Christian, you know, she was the first one that got saved. Talk about the stories and the things that happened in their lives. Do you have that? Build this generational faith by talking about the testimonies of what God has done. It was a great time, though, for Moses and Jethro to remember the works of God. And you can just imagine, you know, this great family reunion, this, this great, wow. And then the next day, you know, you think it's probably going to continue. And Moses goes, well, hold on here. I, I've got some matters I need to attend to. And so he goes out and he starts judging. And, you know, think, oh, okay, no problem. We'll, we'll just go get breakfast. We'll be right back. You know, you come back. Oh, you're still going? Okay, well, we're going to go for, for a morning stroll. So you go out for a morning stroll. 
Hey, come back, and well, it's time for lunch. You're still going, well, we'll just eat lunch. And then, oh, okay, afternoon, well, you know, I'm a little tired after eating all that, that manna. Uh, you know, that was some pretty good stuff, says Jethro, you know. And, and so I guess I'm just going to take a nap. I don't really know if this was quite how it went, but it went all day. And Jethro's like, what are you doing? Do you do this often? And Moses is like, yeah, this is, this is every day. This is every day I do this. And Jethro goes, let me give you some advice. Let me give you some advice. Doing the great task alone is not good. You know, man is not created to be in an island of himself. God creates and he puts people around us. He, he, he goes and he even looked at, at Adam when he was created. You know, he was literally alone, the only human being. He says, it's not good for Adam to be alone. God didn't design us to be alone, but he designed us to do things together to go into work together and to go into to do these things. And it's not good to do a great task alone because there's no doubt that Moses was doing a great task. So he says, it's not good that you do this alone here. And we can see that principle in verse 17 where it says in verse 17, so Moses' father-in-law said unto him, the thing that you do is not good. It's not good out here. And it's not good to do any great task alone and then Moses uh, and the people, he, he warned them that you would get worn out. But I thought it was interesting because he doesn't just say, Moses, you're going to get worn out. But he also says, Moses, the people are also going to get worn out. You and the people are going to get worn out. And this is important to understand because when we go and we take on more than we ought to bear, it's not just us who are affected. It's not just us who are in a danger of a, a burnout or, or getting worn out or, or however we want to go and to look at that. It's also those that we're serving are in danger because you're spread too thin and you're not able to go into to do what you need to do for the people that God has called you to serve. And so it's important that we go and we understand that principle. Another one is here is that he encouraged him to maintain these responsibilities. So he didn't come up to Moses and say, look, Moses, quit being a dummy. You know what? You can't do this. This is too much. We're just going to take it from you and give it to somebody else. And you're never going never gonna to get to do it again. No, he maintained his responsibility. In verse uh, 19, it goes and it says this. Listen now to my voice. I will give you counsel and God will be with you. Stand before God for the people that you may bring the difficulties to God. And he goes and he continues and it talks about how when they had difficult matters, they took it to Moses, right? So Moses, still, he still maintained the responsibility, but he's going to learn a valuable lesson. And this valuable lesson is delegation, is delegation. In fact, in verse 20, uh, he's told here to continue. It says in verse 20, and you shall teach them the statutes of the laws and show them the way and as to which they must walk and the work with, with what they must do. Um, Moses was to continue to teach and instruct. It's not that he was all of a sudden getting to go and to go on vacation or something like that, never go and do anything ever again. He still had a job. He was still responsible and he was still teaching. He was still instructing. He was still judging. He was still doing all this. But Jethro was saying, look, there's delegation. There's delegation that needs to come up. And that was the delegation that he said. And he gave specific instructions for the delegation a specific standard in verse 21. And we're going to get into that, but uh, not quite yet. 
Not quite yet. We're going to look at that here for our last point. Uh, we're going to focus on verse 21. But, but this is important, I think, for us to understand the narrative as to what's happening here. And so Moses is to go and to learn this great lesson. There's a lot of lessons here to learn from Moses. And he ends up going and accepting this advice. Of course, it ends up getting written down in Scripture, so we know it's inspired by God. But it's an incredible thing. But I want us to notice something here specifically about the person of Jethro. Uh, and that's Jethro's priesthood. Jethro's priesthood because Jethro was a priest of Midian. He was a priest of Midian. And in fact, in Exodus 2, verses 16 through 21, we see this here. It says, Now the priest of Midian had seven daughters, and they came and they drew water and they filled the troughs to water the flocks. Then the shepherds came and drove them away, but Moses stood up and he helped them and, the, and watered their flock. Uh, when they came to, and I'm going to call him Jethro here because it's easier to say, Jethro, their father, he said, how is it that, that you have come so soon? And he said, an Egyptian delivered us from the hand of the shepherds, and he also drew enough water for us and watered our flock. And so he said to his daughters, uh, and where is he? Why is, is it that you have left this man? Call him that he may eat bread. Then Moses was content to live with the man, and he gave Zipporah, his daughter, to Moses. So we know that it is Jethro that we're talking about here. He is the priest of Midian. He is the priest of Midian. Now, now who are the Midianites? This is important for us to understand. To understand something about Jethro, is this a, is this a pagan priest who's coming and giving advice uh, this, this guy who doesn't know anything about God and, and he hates God and he's trying to instruct Moses as to how to lead the people of God. Because if that's the case, I don't think you should listen to his advice. But that, that's not the case. That's not the case. In fact, even in Exodus 18, we see confirmation of this. But who were the Midianites? Well, the Midianites, first of all, they were descendants of Abraham. They were descendants of Abraham, and this means that Jethro would have at least had an opportunity to hear about God. He would have at least had an opportunity to hear about God as they were descendants of Abraham. Now, this doesn't mean that the Midianites followed God as a general rule, but it seems as though Jethro did. And we're going to look at that here in Exodus 18 in just a moment, and it's key. But Jethro, uh, I believe it's, it's one of those things that we could say that he obviously feared God. His relationship with Moses bears witness to this, how he treated Moses. Also, how Moses treated him and listened to him. Because, of course, Moses, he is, he is a, a great leader of, of God. He is a great man of faith. We see all this. If this was a, a, a complete pagan, uh, despicable person that he shouldn't go and listen to, Moses wouldn't have listened to him. But he did listen to Jethro. He did listen to his advice and he did follow his advice also. Uh, th this begs the question, though, what kind of a priest was Jethro? Well, first of all, here we need to understand something, that there are some other Old Testament priests or priesthood. First of all, there is the obvious one we think of, and that is the Levitical priesthood or the order, the Levitical order, and that was uh, from Aaron. Aaron, of course, was the, uh, the high priest uh, with this. Well, first of all, Jethro was not a Levite, and so he would not qualify for that. It was a physical priesthood, 
that was based upon a lot of physical specifications. It's very interesting uh, to go and to study that specifically to study it and to go and to compare it to uh, the uh, priesthood qualifications that are given in, in the book of Hebrews. Uh, because it's a spiritual priesthood in the book of Hebrews that's not based on physical quality, but the Levitical one was based on this physical quality. You had to be a certain height. You couldn't be too short. Uh, and if I remember right, I actually fit within the, the, the height thing. That, that, that made me feel good when I saw that. You know, it's not very often uh, that I'm tall enough to qualify for something. I'm happy when they let me ride on the uh, roller coasters you know, at a theme park you know, when I, I cross that line. But... Uh, but but it was was specific height. And, and interestingly, there was a cap too. You couldn't be so tall. Uh, there was a cap as to how tall you could be. Uh, there was also um, these ideas of uh, you had to have no deformities, and you had to have uh, obviously be from a, a a a priest or excuse me a Le- Levitical line, but then also specifically to be a priest, uh, you had to be from the line of Aaron. I mean, it was was very 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 specific. And you couldn't have all these, these other things that might be wrong with you and different things like that. But, but nonetheless, the main point that I want to bring up with that is that Jethro did not qualify to be a Levitical priest. And so he's not speaking from a position of authority of the Levitical priesthood. Uh, Exodus 18 here, the advice he gives, though it's in the book of Exodus, it's not part of Levitical law uh, at all. It's, it's, it's part of something else. It's part of something else. So he couldn't qualify for this idea of being of the Levitical order of Aaron. Um, there are two other people that come to mind when I think of priests in the Old Testament. And that's, first of all, Job. Job was, in a sense, a, a, a priest because he went and he gave sacrifices, burnt offerings, uh, to his, for his family. As he went and he made sacrifices for that. Now, it wasn't a Levitical priest. Uh, it would have been a different kind of priest. The other one is, is Melchizedek. Melchizedek which his priesthood uh, is continued in the book of Hebrews. Now, we don't find any other priesthood. And so I would say that if you're a priest of God and you're not of the Levitical priesthood, you're probably in the order of Melchizedek is what it would be going with and talking about this everlasting type priesthood. Um, now, both, uh, both sacrificed to God outside of the Levitical priesthood. And of course, we know from the story of Saul, King Saul, that it is a very bad idea that if you're not part of the Levitical priesthood and you're not a priest of God, to sacrifice to God, right? Because what would happen? Well, kingdom got torn from Saul uh, for disobeying this. It was a, a, a major offense. But there was no offense here when Jethro did it. In fact, in verse 12, it says, Then Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, took a burnt offering and other sacrifices to offer to God and Abraham, or excuse me, and Aaron, not Abraham, and Aaron came with all the elders of Israel to eat bread with Moses, the father-in-law before God. And so we see here, he's not in contradiction to the Levitical priesthood. He's not part of the Levitical priesthood. He's part of something else. And I think this is important for us to go and to understand because his advice was outside of the Levitical priesthood. This wasn't something that was just for Israel. It's advice that really we should look at for every leader. And like I said, even in the general sense of creating higher courts and lower courts, America adopted that. And that's important to go into to look at that. But I want us to see here verse 21, because this is the standard that God gives for leaders. And specifically, I'm going to be talking about 
uh, political leaders, but really, I, I think that anybody who leads anything, these general qualities should be in them. Because if they're not, well, you're going to run into some problems. I think it's going to become self-evident as we go and we look at this. But in verse 21, Exodus 18, 21, it says this, Moreover, you shall select from all the people able men, such as fear God, men of truth, hate and covetousness, and place uh, such over them to be rulers of thousands, rulers of hundreds, rulers of fifties, and rulers of tens. We see even down to, to ruling over ten. Uh, even in small leadership positions, this was uh, the, the qualification. This was the standard. But God's standard for leaders and why it matters, and, and I put this picture up here, which is from about a week ago, uh, actually eight days ago, I believe is when this happened. Uh, this is Pastor Arthur, and I'm going to try to get his name right. He's from Poland. Uh, Polowski. Polowski. He's originally from Poland. He's a pastor in Canada. And if you can see this here, he is on his knees in the middle of a busy highway. And it's not because he was speeding, and it's not because he was, was uh, driving drunk, and it's not because he was driving disorderly, it's not because he was, was shooting guns out of his window, it's, it's nothing to do with this. It's because this pastor in Canada held church. This pastor in Canada held church. Uh, you may have seen the video, uh, apparently there were two, I didn't see the second one. I needed to go and look up the second one. Uh, or I don't even know if it, there was a video, but people told me about it, uh, about the account. Um, the, the police came to his church. The police came to his church, and uh, they were trying to shut it down because they're arresting pastors, building fences around churches, being literal here, in Canada. Literal tyranny that's coming over this. A government trying to legislate the house of God, right? Which is a, a, a major issue. A major issue, especially being Baptist, because we believe in, in, in uh, a self-governing or autonomy of the local church. We, we don't believe that, that Kim Reynolds, our governor, or, or whoever it might be, we don't believe that she's a pope over our church or, or a cardinal over our church. Uh, she has no say here. We, we believe that, that we're self-governing. But the first time they came, with a powerful voice, this pastor did the exact right thing. And he said, get out! Get out, you Nazis, you Gestapo, get out of here. You're not welcomed here. Get out. And he drove them out. And then they came back a second time with more cops. And he did it again and drove them out. Amen. Praise the Lord for a pastor like that. And as you can notice here, it's not in his church that they got him, but they were surveilling him and monitoring him. And there he was after church. They got him, pulled him over on the highway, drug him out of his car, put him down to his knees, and handcuffed him. What's his crime? Worshiping God. Why does it matter? Why does God's standard for leadership matter? Because those men do not. I'm not talking about Pastor Arthur. But the leaders in Canada... The men arresting him do not meet God's standard. It matters greatly. The first standard here is able, is able. And I got a picture there of a buff George Washington for a reason. It's, it's not just uh, to be funny. I believe that George Washington undoubtedly, uh, undoubtedly met this, this, uh, this qualification of able. But, but what does able mean? What does able mean? Well, it means this, the Hebrew word, it means this strength, wealth, and army. 
The basic idea was strength and influence and personified or applied to people. It means strong character or able judgment. Strong character or able judgment. Uh, Obviously, the translators who translated it able were were really uh, identifying this idea of able judgment because the context is specifically making judgments. But but we see that there is an actual strength here, a strong character in every leader we have, every leader we vote for, every leader we go to a point, whether you're you're hiring somebody as the night shift manager of your store or whether you're going and... uh, And casting a vote for president, they ought to have strong character and they ought to have able judgment. Strong character and able judgment. We should only vote for those with strong character and able judgment. Why? Well, like I said, think of a night shift manager. Can you imagine if they they don't have strong character? Well, what is that going to lead to? Compromise. If they don't have able judgment, what is that going to make? Poor decision making. How would you like that? Would would you ever put that on your resume? I hope not, right? I I hope that you wouldn't put this on your resume. I have poor moral character and I don't have able judgment. Would you hire somebody who had that on their resume? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. And it doesn't matter if you're hiring somebody to be a babysitter, to be somebody to go walk your dog, or to be somebody who's going to go uh, be a night shift manager or, or even be a cashier, right? You're not going to want them to have poor character and no able judgment. Like you go, no way, I'm not hiring you. That, that would be a bad decision on my part. Well, the same is true for anybody we vote for. We should make sure that they're able, that they have strong moral character and able judgment. Look at their track record. What did they compromise on, if anything? Did they make good decisions? Did they make good decisions? We have to look and examine the, the uh, track record of people and the history of people. The second one that's given here is fear God. Fear God. And, and this is somebody who considers God and acts accordingly. Uh, fear, uh, it means here, fear or afraid. And it's the same word that's used in Proverbs 31.30. We looked at this last week and it said this. Charm is deceitful and beauty is passing, but a woman who fears the Lord, she shall be praised. And I said, out of the Proverbs 31 woman, as we looked at that for the Proverbs 31 mother, that was the most important one. And I still think that's true. It's it's one of those things that is absolutely vital because really, if you fear God, you're going to have a lot of these other things. And not all of these other things, uh, depending the able uh, the able, that idea of able judgment, we understand that different people have different capacities. And so uh, somebody who, who I like, look, if you're looking for a brain surgeon, I don't care how good my resume might look to you. You shouldn't hire me for a brain surgeon. OK, I don't know how to do brain surgery. I don't meet the qualification of an able brain surgeon. OK, we understand there are different capacities there. And so able might be a little bit different, but the rest of these things are all going to fall under this idea of if they truly fear God. They're going to have these other ideas. It's really an overarching theme. And I think that fearing God is so important. It's the beginning of wisdom. It's the beginning of knowledge. And we should only vote for God-fearing people, people who consider God and they act accordingly as Christians. We should only vote for people who consider God and they act accordingly, who fear God. Well, let me give you an example. I'm trying to think as to how... Um, how much detail I want to give to this. 
Um, my, my wife, when she was working at Dollar Tree, uh, and I gave too much right there. I didn't mean to say that the name of the, the place. Uh, when she was working at a retail store uh, before, uh, and, and it's okay. I don't think anybody knows the person. But, but she worked under a, a manager who went and uh, was, was fired quickly into, into the job uh, for a couple months. And, and what was she fired for? Well, she was fired for stealing. The manager was stealing. Not, not my wife. The manager was stealing. Uh, the, they, she acted without consequence by taking money that wasn't theirs. And they had the principle that the ends justify the means, right? What I want is important. That's the end, what I'm going to go buy, what I'm going to go get, or whatever it might be. And so the means of taking something that's not mine, it justified it because I get what I want. And we're going to look a little bit more importantly into the love of money and things like that. But you cannot hold this type of person accountable because they are not accountable to God in the realm of self-governance. That's why the fear of God is important. We cannot hold somebody accountable who does not fear God. A governor who does not fear God, who goes and acts like a tyrant and shuts down churches, or, or a president who goes and, and, and does that, uh, or prime minister, I should say, like in the, the case of Canada, or, or a mayor, or whatever it might be, they don't fear God, right? That's, that's pretty obvious, right? They don't fear God. How can the church, how can a Christian, how can you even as just a citizen hold them accountable if they think that they are above God? Because guess what? Somebody who thinks that they're above God, whether or not they would actually speak it that way, if their actions prove it that way, you can't convince somebody who thinks themselves as God that they're wrong. You can't confront them. You can't hold them accountable. They're just going to double down and do whatever they want to do. In fact, we were talking to some friends uh, from Michigan here not, not too long ago, and they were talking about um, um, their governor and, and the different things that were, were happening and, and just the, the ridiculousness of it. But one of the things was, was that as soon as the, the weather got warm again, which, which it's scientific fact, right? The vitamin D is very helpful in fighting COVID. They locked everything down. Said, everybody stay inside. Don't go get your vitamin D, basically. It's a doubling down on, I'm going to say what's right, even against the science, even against the real stuff that's happening, even against the, these things. So how do we notice if somebody obeys God or fears God, excuse me? Uh, we need to see how they obey God's commands. Simple morality shows a simple fear of God. Uh, the other thing I would point out here, because this is important, and we, we don't have time to develop this this morning, but, but I do want to mention it because it's so important when coming to the fear of God. Uh, we need to look at a leader and ask the question, are they a coward? Are they a coward? Because you cannot fear God and be afraid of man at the same time. We, we, we see this example in the life of Gideon, in the life of Gideon. Gideon was a coward to start with. Until he had God come to him, and well, a theophany came to him. And then he feared God. 
And then he went and he stood. But where did we see this mighty man, Gideon? Threshing wheat in a wine press. Supposed to thresh wheat in the highest place so that the wind can come and blow away the chaff. Instead, he was in a wine press, the lowest place, because he was hiding, being afraid of Midian. And once he feared God, he took 300 men and defeated Midian. He was no longer threshing wheat in the wine press. The next thing we see here, the next qualification is that of men of truth or, or lovers of truth here, this idea. And, and this is important to go and to look at. What is this idea? What does this word mean, truth? Well, it, it means truth or faithfulness. And, and first of all here, I think that both ideas are found. Uh, they, they tell the truth and they are faithful in character. You shouldn't vote for somebody who's a liar. I, I think that goes without saying, right? We shouldn't vote for somebody who's who's a liar. We shouldn't put anybody in position of leadership who's a liar. And we shouldn't go and, and find somebody who's unfaithful uh, and put them in leadership. And we shouldn't vote for somebody who's unfaithful uh, in that sense too, an unfaithfulness of character. Why? Well, do you want to hire a liar? No. How about somebody who no calls and no shows all the time? And why do I bring that up, this no call, no show? Because it's number one, it's, it, it happens all across our land. Whenever I talk to managers, whenever I talk to business owners, Whenever even I just talk to, to, to employees of, of jobs that have especially entry-level jobs, they go and they say, oh, you can't find help. These people no-call, no-show all the time. We just went through 15 different employees because after the second no-call, no-show, we fire them, right? All this kind of stuff, talking about no-call, no-show. Well, specifically in Iowa, did you know we have some legislators who only showed up for like, 20% of the days down in Des Moines. You know what that's called? If, if you work any other job, no call, no show. That's what it's called. It's called no call, no show. It's the same in Washington. It's the same all over the place that we have people who, who no call, no show. We shouldn't go and vote for people who no call, no show all the time. That's absolutely wrong. It's wrong to go and to do this no call, no show in fact, I think actually if you talk to Brent afterwards, uh, he mentioned this to me a few times. Uh, the County Board of Supervisors, he knows a little bit about that. The County Board of Supervisors, uh, they, they've got several people on the board who like, didn't show up for the first three months of, uh, of 2020, or right after the election, right? About, about the first three months. Didn't show up to work one day after, uh, after the elections in November for three months. That's called no call, no showing. That's, that's ridiculous to go and to look at that. We shouldn't vote for people who aren't faithful in character, who aren't lovers of truth. Obviously, I think the truth thing is, is important to go and to look at that. I think it's somewhat self-evident, so I don't want to spend a whole lot of time on that, but maybe it's not as self-evident as I think about when I think about the culture that we live in. So maybe I should just take just a little bit of time and talk about the importance of truth. First of all, truth by definition is what? Exclusive, okay? There's not 15 different truths. Two plus two can't equal five and four at the same time. It equal either five or it equal either four. In case you're curious, it's four, right? We can't go and say your truth, my truth, his truth, their truth, these truths, those truths. It's the truth. And we should go and vote for people who are people of the truth, who love truth. That doesn't mean they're always right. I understand that. But people who desperately seek the truth, want to know the truth, hold the truth, 
and, and put it up there. Let, let me tell you one truth that's really important, that, that's a debate in, in, in our time. You know, 20 years ago, I guarantee you they never thought this would be a debate. What's a man and what's a woman? Is gender fluid or is it actually there? There's only one answer. In case you're curious, it's that men are men and women are women. And men going and taking hormones and growing their hair out and putting it into a ponytail and going and playing women's sports doesn't make them a woman. We have these kind of debates all the time in politics. And why is it? It's because we've got a bunch of non-Exodus 18.21 people in office. We can't have that. We can't have that and survive as a society. The last one here is hating covetousness. Hating covetousness. And what is the meaning of this here, this covetousness? Well, the, the word actually means dishonest gain or covetousness, and it refers to an illegal or unjust profit. It's really talking about being bribed. It's really talking about being bribed. Well, why would we want to have somebody who hates covetousness or this unjust or illegal gain? Well, do we want a bribed leader? I sure don't want a bribed leader. Principles can't be bought, so vote for those with principles, right? That's important. That's important. And so this is something that we should go and look for. This would be something before we vote, we should go and look. Where did the contributions from a person come from? Where did they come from? Do they love money or do they love generosity? Do they love money or do they love generosity? You, you know, it was one of those kind of funny things. Uh, I, I don't remember the exact statistics, so I won't give a percentage. Uh, but it was the idea when I believe um, Bernie Sanders, uh, his, his tax or, or giving statement came out and was made public. You know, the guy who talks about all the time, free, 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 give, 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 everything needs to be equal, equal, equal. Well, it came out that he had bought several houses and his percentage for giving was, was very low and, and his income was, was very high. Um, and, and in fact, if I remember correct, like I said here, I don't want I, I to go and, and give an exact number. But if I remember correct, going and looking at that and then I compared it to my own giving just, just for kind of fun percentage-wise, it was like percentage-wise we gave like three or four times more than what he gave. And, and yet... What is he going after and saying? Well, what does that what does that tell you about Bernie Sanders? Bernie Sanders is a lover of covetousness. He certainly doesn't hate covetousness. He, he he loves this idea of bribery, and he doesn't love generosity. He wants you to be generous with your money, but not with his. Don't vote for people like that. Don't vote for people like that. God's leaders give, and that's something that's important to go and to look at. They're, they're not people who are going and seeking, how much money can I go and accrue? And by the way, uh, wealth isn't evil. It's the love of money that's the root of all evil. And what happens when you desire money and put it above chasing God and putting it above uh, everything else, we say, seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you today. It's because I wanted to make this point here with that. When we seek first the kingdom of God, when we seek first Christ, 
It's not the love of money that drives us. There is, when our life is set, there is in Proverbs some biblical principles that do lead to our needs being taken care of, which is in direct context of what that was talking about there in that verse. But when you go and you get it backwards and you go and you have the love of money up top, what happens? A root springs up. And what do roots do? They nourish the rest of the plant, right? It's the root of all evil. So the rest of the evil, the evil that's within our flesh, gets nourished and they get propped up. And that's how we have this great industry at Planned Parenthood that makes tons of money on what? Killing babies. Right? What is that? That's the love of money. Well, why is it? Because in all honesty, if you go and you look at the science and, and you go and you show the science, there's absolutely no doubt that is a human being at the point of conception with its own 100% unique, distinct DNA. It wouldn't be hard. I, like, I, I can quote secular, secular uh, scientists and embryologists who go and, 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 they, and they say this, the, the, the thing. Like they're, they're saying this. They're giving the, the pro-life. Uh, the, the pro-life science. It wouldn't be hard if we just looked at it as science to go into end abortion. Why can't we end abortion? Well, uh, generally how it, how it works is that uh, Democrats, uh, the, the, the two parties here, Democrats get money on the, the front end of abortion, right? Planned Parenthood goes and they redistribute and they go and they, they, they give money uh, to all other kinds of organizations and things like that. And Republicans make money by going and compromising while, while debating bills by going and saying, fine, we'll give you money to Planned Parenthood if you give us money to these things. That's what ends up happening. It's covetousness. It's dishonest gain. It's an unjust profit. And we ought to look at those things. We ought to realize these things. We ought to stand against these things and demand that our leaders are not lovers of covetousness. That they're not bought and paid for. I don't remember who said it. Um, in fact, I believe it was somebody who was, was secular and, and I'm not trying to just ignore who said it. I, I honestly can't remember. Um, but they said that they think politicians should be like NASCAR drivers and uh, wear on their jackets who bought them. I want to deal with some objections because I've heard a lot of objections to this presentation of Exodus 18.21 before. And the first objection is, is number one, and this is the main objection. You're looking for a perfect candidate and there is no one perfect, therefore no one qualifies. That's the objection. Well, first of all here, I agree 100%. No one is perfect, but that's why I would say we need a standard because how scary would it be to live in a world full of imperfect people, which is what we live in with zero standards, with zero standards. Because no one is perfect, God gave us these standards. And the second thing to that is, is that, well, we read the end of the passage where it simply says that Moses went and did this. He found people. And you're right, they weren't all perfect people. In fact, one of the people that Moses found was evidently Korah, who led in a rebellion. That doesn't mean that they're gonna act perfect with that. But it means that there's still a minimum standard before you get put in a position, before we give a stamp of approval, before we vote, 
before we go and we say, yes, this is the type of person that we're looking for. The other one is, is that there are only two names on the ballot. And generally that isn't true uh, because there is almost always a right in line. Uh, most of the time, that's not always true. Some city council races and th- some things like that don't uh, allow a right in line. But I would say uh, morally, our question isn't to do what's most pragmatic. Our, our question morally is to do what's right before God. The ends don't justify the means. The means justify the means as we obey God and we leave the ends up to him. And so we, I would say that if, there's, if you're presented with a, a, a two-person option, that, that neither one of these people uh, go and they, they, they fit this, this Exodus 18, neither one of them fit these things. Well, what's the advice? Well, not just the advice. Well, Jethro's advice here. I'd go and say, don't vote for either one of them. Write in. And even if it's somebody who you, who, you, who you can't, I would say then it would be right to not vote in that. And that's very strange for me to say it would be right to not vote because oh, let me tell you, I think it's a sacred duty to vote because render unto Caesar that which is Caesar's in a constitutional republic, our vote is required to maintain that type of government. And so we must render unto Caesar that which is Caesar's, which is our vote and our voice. The third one is, of course, is that the the ends justify the means. I will take the lesser of two evils. When two evils present themselves, choose righteousness. Choose righteousness. Think of this idea of cheating on your spouse, emotionally or physically. Choose faithfulness. Telling a little lie or a big lie. Choose the truth. Stealing $100 or $10,000. Choose not to steal. We're called to choose righteousness. We're called to meet God's standard. We're not to follow God's standard. Today, as I conclude, I just want to say this. Until we care about God's standard and let God's standard rule our hearts, our minds, and yes, even our votes, we will never please God in the way that we should. We'll never do it. Our nation may yet be saved if revival sweeps our land, but there's no such thing as revival without repentance, and there's no such thing as repentance without surrender. In Iowa, we're the first in the nation. This is why it's really important. The first in the nation caucus. And we'll have the opportunity to lead in surrendering to God, repenting, and ultimately revival. If we lead in voting for the right kind of candidate. I I don't know who all is going to be running for president. I can tell you it's probably going to be a lot of people. Always is. Campaigns have already started. I, I believe uh, I read three weeks ago that one one uh, hope, presidential hopeful um, was in the Quad Cities already, and I think has already made a second trip to Iowa, uh, which is very early. Normally, you think about starting probably after uh, probably probably this fall is generally when you think of them starting to trickle in, and then after the midterm elections, really coming and staying, right? Pretty much. Uh, finding a house in Iowa. We have a responsibility as Christians to do what's right. And so I want to challenge you, encourage you to start vetting candidates based on Exodus 18.21. Are they able? Do they fear God? Are they of the truth? And do they hate covetousness? And if you find somebody who doesn't and they're running, Tell people about it. And if you find somebody who does meet those qualifications, really tell people about it. 
I, like I said, I don't know. Maybe we'll have nobody who qualifies. I have no idea. I sure hope we do. I'm hopeful that we will. I'm hopeful that we'll find a Josiah who will go and clean house. But we need to start praying for those people. We need to start encouraging those people. And in Iowa, you're going to have an opportunity, if you want it, to go meet these people who are campaigning for your vote. And you can go and ask them questions that will reveal whether or not they're Exodus 18, 21 people. And if they're not, challenge them. Yeah, sometimes we get starstruck when we see somebody like this, but they are just men. That's all they are. If we have a fear of man, it's because we haven't bent down and prayed before God. Why can we stand before the king? Because we've knelt before the king of kings. Today, I just want to conclude with this question. The question will be, will we obey God's standard or will we compromise and see just how far sin can destroy this nation? And let me tell you, the falls of nations are great, mighty, and swift. And we're teetering with that line right now. We must repent. We must return to a God standard. Let's close in a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we do just thank you for this day and thank you for the opportunity given us to come and to look into your word. What a privilege that is, Father. And Lord, we would just pray today that you would raise up godly leaders, leaders who are able, leaders who fear you, leaders who love the truth, and leaders who hate covetousness. Lord, I pray specifically that you might give us wisdom to identify these people and that you might give us moral strength and courage to rally behind them. And Lord, that as we rally behind them, that you would take them and that you would set them in places, that you'd make them mayors, that you'd put them on city councils, that you'd put them in the board of county supervisors. Lord, that you would put them in the state legislature as, as representatives and senators. Lord, that you'd raise up judges Lord, that we might find a governor who truly fears you. Lord, ultimately, we would pray for U.S. House representatives and U.S. senators, Supreme Court justices, and presidents that fit these qualifications, not because we're snobbish and not because we're prudish, but, Father, because we love our neighbor and we can only love our neighbor rightly by obeying you. And Father, we would just pray, knowing that this will work out for the best. Lord, it wears a people out when a, a righteous man takes on too much, but so much more when wicked men lead and rule. And Father, truly our nation is worn out. May we return to you and rest in you and rest in your righteousness. We would just pray this would be to your will, not ours. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.